Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Hemingway List Year of War and Peace. We are talking about Book 1, Chapter 4 of War and Peace. Um, now, Chapter 4 and Chapter 5 end in very different places between the different versions of War and Peace, the different translations. Maud, we read Maud yesterday, and now we're going to talk about Chapter 4, and we're going to discuss some things that happened, and then we're going to read chapter 5, and it's going to seem like those things happened in chapter 5. It's all a bit out of sync, but that's okay. It doesn't matter, because um, it all syncs up again very soon, um, and then basically for the rest of the year, we'll all be completely in sync, but there's just a little, in the first um, few chapters, for some reason, they decided to change where the, the chapter markers were. It's quite annoying. Um, the discussion prompts were these. Drubitskaya, thoughts? And do you think Prince Andrew is actually supportive of, Nap of Napoleon or was he merely coming to Pierre's aid? And why do you think Prince Ippolit told that story all of a sudden? Now, what's going to happen now is I'm going to read you... We're going to talk about those things. But Prince Andrew um, being supportive or not of Napoleon or coming to Pierre's aid... That's going to happen in the chapter I'm going to read you after. And same with Printiplet's weird story. So it's all a bit backwards today. But hey, don't worry about it. Let's just continue. It'll all be good. Korsho said, Last year there was a misunderstanding in the discussion about whether Prince Drubitskaya's plan to get her son Boris an appointment in the Royal Guards meant that she wanted him to be safer during the war. But since the Guards took part in the battles alongside regular units, it was not about safety but about serving in a more prestigious unit with better career opportunities. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think different families have different priorities, but for the most part, it's wanting your your child to be in the sort of most prestigious or most well-renowned parts of, you know, of the military. Danadu said, I agree the army, like the case of civil service, was a symbiosis with the aristocracy until very late, rank-wise. The problem of the unprofessional army, meaning that promotions were based more on social pedigree and not merit, would haunt the Tsarist regime until its last days. Yeah, it really did seem like um, the higher up in the military you were, the higher your rank almost directly corresponded with you know, how high you were in the aristocracy, you know, in the social pedigree. And that's one interesting thing about this book is how you see how that kind of worked. Tadabos said, I wonder if Boris knows about his mother's efforts and if he'd approve. Parents will humiliate themselves to help their kids, so I feel empathetic towards his mother. Prince Ibelit tells an unimpressive story, but everyone pretends to find it pleasant just to get away from Pierre's outbursts. I did like that he said, I must tell it in Russian, otherwise the salt of the story won't be felt. But his Russian is terrible, so it's unclear what the point of his outburst was. The great line was, influence in society is a capital that must be used sparingly, lest it disappears. Oh, that's from, yeah, we read that yesterday. Um... Eat more. Hummus said, I'm pretty sure his Russian is fine. I think the story was just pointless. Um, if you haven't heard the story yet, because if you're just listening along to the podcast, you're going to hear Ippolit's story in the chapter, and it's quite amusing. And also, I've Aussieified it. And for some reason, I made Ippolit just a massive Darrow, like just a total station rat bogan. So he talks like, oh, yeah, kill me, or that, what do you reckon? Do? Like, it's total dipshit. And uh, I think that's pretty fitting to his character. 
Um, you know what I was thinking about today? Actually, I was talking about today on the live stream. By the way, live streams are going every day. If you want to hang out with me while I work on my Aussie War and Peace translation, Launchpad Writers Club is what you need to find on YouTube. Launchpad Writers Club. Go and hit subscribe and ding the bell. And then when I go live, you'll be able to talk to me tomorrow for the live stream. Um, but what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So on the live stream today, we were talking about this uh, war and peace. A more literal or closer translation from the original Russian would probably be war and society. And it's handy to know that going into the book, that it's almost like those are the two um, elements of the book. There's the, those who would go after the war and then it's juxtaposed with the ones who stay back in sort of high society, you know. War and society. So that's a good thing to think about as we go in. Might help to contextualize the book a little bit more. Order from Chaos said, A moment of confusion for me as my copy, appearing on the first page to be standard Maud, though lacking any reference to its translation labels. This is chapter five. I hope this corrects itself later. Yeah, it does. It will correct itself very soon. And I apologize that it's a bit confusing to start off with, although it's not my fault. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just bear with us. It's fine, you know. It's no biggie. It is confusing, but yeah, don't worry too much. I find Pierre's outburst compelling, and I'm reminded of myself coming home from university for a holiday aged about 19, full of very provocative ideas and having lots of arguments with my parents that I lacked the subtlety or background readings to bear out, so they always came out a little half-baked and ill-supported. Oh, yeah. Andrew, coming to his rescue, feels like an older version of me, having that same discussion but with subtler points and with perhaps more confidence, not necessarily with different views. The actual content of dinner table political discussions are often immaterial, but off without the need to provoke to prove something. Perhaps I'm simply projecting. This is my first reading and my first comment on a chapter. Yeah, there's been, there's always been members of my household, my family, who have been that guy, you know, wanting to make a point, even though they're half baked. And it's just kind of, they just enjoy the discourse, you know, they just want to prove they know everything when really we don't know nothing at that age. But I never really, I, I don't think I often took the bait. I would just kind of sit back and go, I don't think anyone here knows what they're talking about and I don't know what I'm talking about. So I'm just going to wait until we start talking about like, you know, a television show or the weather or something where I can actually chime in with a bit of confidence. Um, so I've been almost more like a, a someone who would, a bit of a wallflower in those kinds of things. Eat more hummus, good advice. Also a good comment. Also cake day, happy cake day to you, eat more hummus. Did Ippolit actually graffiti Anna Pavlovna's table? Prince Ippolit, who had been studying the Viscount through his lorgnette, suddenly turned right around to face the little princess, borrowed a needle from her and used it to scratch an outline of the Conde family coat of arms on the tabletop. I guess he did. Good pickup. The real Amitik, Amitik, said, I find Drubitskaya and Prince Vasily quite similar as both of them came to Anna not to enjoy the meeting, but to take favour from someone who is present there. Prince hurries to leave the meeting after he talks with Anna about appointing the first secretary of Vienna, which was his sole concern. Drubitskaya is just pretending to listen to the Vicomte after her purpose was accomplished, and I love how lovely the descriptions of Helena are, even when she isn't the main focus of the passage. Tolstoy seems to be reminding us that the scene is happening with her beautiful presence. 
She, so far, is my favourite character. Aha. Well, then, you're in for a treat, then, if that's your favourite character. She's one to watch. The Qureshi said challenge. Retell Ibelit's story properly to amuse fancy guests. Rick Evans said, I think one of the interesting things about the novel so far is that whilst we are essentially viewing scenes of peace rather than war at this stage, Anna Pavlovna's salon is like a social battlefield. Pierre the Bastard may be the lowest in the pecking order, but also represents idealism and change to the established order. Drubitskaya, on the other hand, is the old world that is fighting to stay alive. That's a very good analogy. Well done. And I like that Pierre kind of comes in, you know, as close to our level as possible. <laughs> you know, he belongs there. You know, he does belong there, but he is the lowest in the pecking order, the social pecking order. So he's our kind of our leg up into this society. Because, um, you know, I would not, I don't feel very at home in Anna Pavlovna's salon, in her soiree. And so I need a, I need a pair of eyes to look through to make sense of it all. Fruit Jelly Gummy Bear said, I didn't realize during my first read what a huge favor Mikhailovna is asking for. She gets Boris, her boy, his place in the guard, sure, but then goes on to ask for him to be Kutuzov's adjutant. Kutuzov is the commander-in-chief of the whole Russian army. I'm not sure Vasily even has that kind of influence, but it's pretty brazen coming from someone who didn't even score an invite to Anna Pavlovna's soiree. She's totally shameless when she sees an opportunity but her family standing in society. Yeah. Yeah, then she just kind of, she gets the, the favor, which is a big favor to have him put on the guards. And um, then she just goes, I'll just go all, I'll go all out. I'll go for broke. And she just asks for basically the biggest favor. Um, yeah, it is quite cool. I'm Norwegian said, I was confused until I went back yesterday's discussion and saw that there is indeed a difference between the Maud and Briggs translation. I read a little of the latter at work. I did feel something was off when I sat down to read my whole thing on the Kindle. Anyway, we're introduced to Andre. He, oh yeah, that's just the discrepancy in where the chapters end. Andre remains one of my favorite characters. He's such a cool guy. I mean, look at him. My one man crush. And there's a photo here of him, apparently. Oh yeah, from the BBC one, James Norton. Looking very slick. Uh, Idolatry for Beginners said, I really dislike... And don't trust Andre. He comes off as selfish rather than rebellious, power-hungry rather than ideologue, and has a general interest in being an arsehole. Pierre comes off as naive but hopeful. Change is possible. The old guard have no interest in losing their power, and Andre seems like he would welcome any disruption which would put him in front. This may be terribly wrong. Yeah, I think you're not far off, but I think also you're using a lot of kind of modern terminology, you know, um hopeful for change, um, you know, their power-hungry ideologue, interest in power and disruption. All these seem very modern words for politics, and I think they're not far off. And, of course, those concepts existed then, but I feel like you're just putting a bit of a modern lens on them. You're not, far, you're not wrong about Andre, though. He is, he's unhappy is where he is at the start of the book. And that comes across as an asshole. You know, you know when someone's trapped in a situation that they're not happy with, they feel like they need to go out in the world and prove themselves, but they're being stifled by whatever situation they're in in life. And that can come across unhealthily as just sort of grumpiness 
and they get angry at all those around them because they can't find their way out of the situation. That's where we find Andre at the start, I think. Pierre is in a very opposite thing. He's free. He's not tied down with anything. And he's got all the freedom in the world to choose what he wants to do with his life and yet can't think of anything he wants to do just yet. So very good, very good um, take on it. Twisted every way, said, this is the longest chapter yet. Well, yeah, if you're not reading the uh, Maud one, I suppose. Iblitz's story cracked me up, reminds me of the drunk guy at the party that tries to tell a joke and starts cracking up before the punchline and then wheezes it out while everyone looks on in confusion. Might have been funny, but the joke's ruined. That said, it really was just a distraction, so I suppose it served its purpose well. All right, continuing, continuing, continuing. Um, What else have we got here? I'm just going to scroll through a little bit. I'm not going to read every comment today because I think we're about ready to keep moving. Sluggy with three Gs said, Oh, there's a Hemingway list invader. I know this name. Sluggy with three Gs. Welcome to invading a year of war and peace. Thank you for helping me lead the charge. I'm going to take over the joint. Hi, everyone. I read Anna Nuna last year with the Hemingway list. And I'm so excited that we're doing war and peace this year. I've read it before. Garnet, probably about 15 years ago, and I'm trying the Briggs translation this time. I've missed my daily Tolstoy readings, and I'm looking forward to getting to know everyone as they read together this year. Sluggy with 3D, you should jump in and um, have a bit of a War and Peace hangout with me on the live stream every day, if you want, on the Launchpad Writers Club YouTube channel. An OG Hemingway List member. Good to have you here, my friend. Um, I have read now Anna Karenina and War and Peace, and I much prefer War and Peace. Anna Karenina was a good book. I much prefer War and Peace. Snapback Kid said, After reading this chapter, I find I kind of find Ippolit a little endearing in that comical, stupid way. Yeah, he kind of is a bit of an endearing goof. He may not be the brightest in the room, but I like how he recognized that a change in subject was needed to keep the party going and took it upon himself to make it happen, even if it meant through uh, telling a poor joke that only he found funny. He reminds me of the silly hyena from The Lion King. <laughs> oh, golly. Is anyone else having trouble with the characters? Asks Sunshine Cat. Um, someone has actually posted a, a link. If you have a look in the um, in the subreddit, someone has posted about um, the naming conventions and someone else has posted a thing um, comparing who which actors played these characters, the main characters, um, in various film adaptations of the of the book so those two resources there are really helpful to help get your head around who we're dealing with here it'll all start to sink in eventually anyway though i'd say that continuing 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 um samantha crew said i love listening to the war and peace podcast in the mornings and hearing the aussie version thanks very much and then reading the Maud edition during the day it's a fun way to understand the text as for Drivitskaya, I can understand why Andrew would hate Drivitskaya attempting to pull strings for her son, as Andrew himself is one who has to perform the favour. That being said, it is more than understandable that Drivitskaya would try her best to use a good name to make sure her son is prosperous. Good word for it, prosperous. As Tolstoy says, influence in society is capital which has to be economised if it is to last. I see no fault in that. Prince Vasily just did that himself with Anna. Very cool. All right, let's read. What are we reading now? Chapter 5. I'm ready to keep re reading if you guys are. Before I do, patreon.com slash the Hemingway list. If you would like to support the podcast, you can uh, do so for as little as $1 per month. 
over at patreon.com slash the Hemingway list. You can really choose an amount that you feel is uh, equal to the value that you're getting from this podcast. Or you can t- continue to listen to, f- to it for free. I'm happy for that as well. All right, there's an ad for you. Now let's read chapter five. And what do you reckon of Napoleon's latest shenanigans during his coronation at Milan? Asked Anna Pavlovna. And how everyone in Luca and Genoa immediately started kissing his ass, all like, Oi, come on, Napoleon, let us roll with you, mate. Come on, dude. And lend us a few bucks, too. Come on, please, dude, don't be a stingy bastard. Isn't that a bit cute? And then Napoleon was like, yeah, all right, you lot are all right, you can hang with us. It's like the whole world's gone bonkers. Prince Andre looked at Anna with a bit of a smirk. He said a bunch of weird French words, apparently quoting Napoleon's own speech during the coronation. Dieu me le don, gars et cuir la touche. They say he was cool as hell when he said that, Prince Andre remarked. Then he repeated the speech again, this time in Italian. Dio me li hago, gars la touche. Translated into English, finders keepers, don't touch my shit. I hope this will be the last drop that makes the glass run over. Anna Pavlovna continued. The guy is a total ratbag. The sovereigns won't be able to enjoy him. The sovereigns? I'm not talking about Russia, said the Viscount, polite but hopeless. The sovereigns, madame, what have they done for Louis the Twelfth, seventeenth? Louis seventeen. Sorry, can't read Russian uh, Roman numerals. What have they done for Louis seventeen, for the Queen, or for Madame Elizabeth? Bugger all, and he became more animated. And trust me, they are reaping the reward of their betrayal of the Bourbon cause. The sovereigns, ha, they are sending ambassadors to kiss the usurper's ass. He sighed disdainfully and again changed his position. Prince Ippolit, who had been staring at the Viscount for a long time through his lorgnette, suddenly turned around and asked the little princess for a needle. Then he began tracing the Condé coat of arms on the table. He explained this to her with as much gravity as if she had asked him to do it. Baton de Guise, Ingrel de Guise de Uzur Maison Conde, said he, with a meaningful sigh. The princess listened, smiling. If Bonaparte stays on the throne for one more year, the Viscount continued, and you could tell by the way he spoke that if you tried to chime in, he'd speak over you, as he was more interested in what he had to say. Things will have gone too far. By schemes, violence, exile and executions, they're getting rid of all the good bits of French society, and then... He shrugged his shoulders and spread out his hands. Pierre really wanted to chime in here, but Anna Pavlovna, who was keeping a close eye on him, jumped in first. The Emperor Alexander, she started, with the melancholy that she adopted whenever she spoke of the imperial family. Oh, hang on, I'll read that again. The Emperor Alexander she started, with the melancholy that she adopted whenever she spoke of the imperial family, has said that he's leaving it up to the French people themselves to choose their own government once the usurper is gone. And once that prick is out, I really believe the whole nation will throw itself into the arms of the rightful ruler, she said, trying to be amiable to the royalist emigrant. I doubt that, said Prince André. Monsieur le Vicomte, quite rightly, is suggesting that it's too late to consider that. The usurper is in. You can chuck going back to the old regime straight into the too-hard basket. I'd like to. I'd like I'd like to say something, said Pierre awkwardly, 
blushing and breaking into the conversation. From what I've heard, almost all the aristocracy has already sided with Bonaparte. It is the Bonapartists who say that, replied the Viscount, looking without looking at Pierre. Right now it is impossible to know the true state of the French public opinion. What Pierre says is right. Bonaparte said it himself, said Prince André with a sarcastic smile. He clearly thought that the Viscount was a dickhead and was aiming his remarks at him, though without looking at him. I showed them the path to glory, but they did not follow it, Prince André continued after a brief silence, and again repeating Napoleon's words, I opened my antechambers and they crowded in. I don't know if he could really justify saying that, but... Not even remotely, replied the Viscount. After he murdered the Duke, even his biggest fans stopped calling him a hero. If anyone ever did call him a hero... He went on, turning to Anna Pavlovna. Certainly now there is one more martyr in heaven and one less hero on earth. But before Anna Pavlovna had time to agree, emphatically with the Viscount, Pierre again broke into the conversation, and though Anna Pavlovna felt sure he was about to say something stupid, she was unable to stop him. The execution of the Duc de Enheim, declared Monsieur Pierre, was politically necessary, and I reckon it showed true grit by Napoleon that he was prepared to take on that responsibility himself. It shows his soul is truly great. Dieu, mon Dieu, muttered Anna Pavlovna in a terrified whisper. Wait, what? Pierre, are you saying that assassinating someone shows greatness of soul? said the little princess, smiling and drawing her work nearer to her. Oh, snap, hey-oh, exclaimed several voices. Brilliant! exclaimed Prince Hippolyte in English, and he began slapping his knee. The Viscount shrugged his shoulders. Pierre looked solemnly at his sudden audience over his spectacles and continued, Yes, I reckon it does, he implored them, because the Bourbons were total pussies. They fled the revolution, leaving the people in anarchy. It was Napoleon who stepped up. He understood the revolution, and he stopped it. So, I mean, yeah, one man's life got in the way. Still worth it, though. Pierre, buddy, why don't you come check out this uh, table over here, suggested Anna Pavlovna. But Pierre wasn't having a bar of that. Yeah, now nah, I'm good here, he cried. And now he was starting to get really into it. Napoleon is great because he rose superior to the revolution, suppressed its abuses. He preserved all the good bits, though, equality of citizenship and freedom of speech and of the press, and that's why he obtained power. Yeah, well, if he'd... If he had have obtained power without having to murder a man, and then he gave that power back to the rightful king, well, then I'd have called him a great man, remarked the Viscount. How could he have done that, though? Not possible. The only reason they gave him that power was because he could rid them of the Bourbons, and because they could see he was a great man. The revolution was a grand thing, continued Monsieur Pierre, and by now you could see clearly that he was a very young and excitable young man, being so desperate and provocative in what he declared to the group. Oh, yeah, cool. So now revolutions and regicides are grand things. Good to know, Pierre. Anyway, mate, you really should come see this other table over here. You'll love it, really, pleaded Anna Pavlovna. Rousseau's contrat social, said the Viscount, smiling patiently. I'm not talking about regicide, I'm talking about ideas. Yeah, ideas of robbery and murder and regicide, again interjected an ironical voice. 
Those were extremes, though, no doubt, and they are not what is really important. What is important are the rights of man, emancipation from prejudices, and equality of citizenship. Those are fucking good ideas, and Napoleon has retained them to the bloody max. Liberty and equality, said the Viscount contemptuously, as if at last deciding to shut this little bastard up and show everyone what an idiot he was. All sounds well and good, but we've all known for a long time now that it's bullshit. I mean, who doesn't love liberty and equality? Even our saviour preached liberty, liberty and equality. But are people happier now since the revolution? No, they're miserable. We wanted liberty, and it was Bonaparte that fucked it up. Prince André was loving this. His eyes went happily from Pierre to the Viscount, then from the Viscount to their hostess. Initially, when Pierre's outburst began, Anna Pavlovna could do nothing but look stupefied, despite her years of social experience. But... When she saw that Pierre's sacrilegious words hadn't rattled the Viscount, she rallied behind the Viscount and together they tried to cut Pierre down a peg. But Pierre, she said, how the hell are you going to claim that a man is great if he goes around murdering dukes? Untried, innocent dukes. Or, you know what, murdering anyone for that matter. Yeah, and how can you explain the 18th Brumaire? asked the Viscount. Was that not a total scam? It was bullshit, not the actions of a great man. And he killed all those prisoners in Africa. That was pretty messed up, said the little princess, shrugging her shoulders. Yeah, he's a fucking knob, I reckon, remarked Prince Ippolit, burping midway through the word reckon. Pierre did not know who to answer. He looked at them all and smiled. His smile was a good one. Not a half-assed one, like you'd see on most posh wankers. When he smiled, his gloomy, kind of grumpy look was transformed into a childlike, apologetic, and even rather silly look, which seemed to say, "Geez, I don't bloody know, do I? How do you expect him to answer ten of you at once? Give him a go, all right? Give him a go, said Prince André. Besides, we're talking about the actions of a statesman here, so we've got to distinguish between his acts as a private person, as a general, and as an emperor. That's what I reckon, at least. Yes, yes, exactly, Pierre chimed in, happy that Prince André was backing him up. You've got to admit, continued Prince André, that Napoleon, as a man, was great on the bridge of Arcola, and when he gave his hand to the plague-stricken in the hospital in Jafar. Of course, there's other things he's done that are harder to justify. Prince André, being a true ride-or-die bro, was undermining the situation in an effort to reduce the awkwardness currently being levelled at Pierre by the group. He now rose and made a signal to his massive little wife that it was time to bail. <coughs> Suddenly, Prince Ippolit started insisting everyone gathered round and be seated. Then began, oh, I've got this ripper story from Moscow. You've got to hear it, eh? Oi, shut up, guys. I've got a story. Sorry, Vicom. I'm going to say it in Russian because otherwise it'll be shit. And Prince Ippolit began to tell his story in the kind of Russian a French backpacker might use after spending a year in Russia. Everyone waited. He'd done such a good job rounding them up for his story. Alright, so there's this stingy old bitch in Moscow, old dame. She's a real tight ass, and she's got to have two footmen behind her carriage, like big fucking ones, eh? Uh, that was like her thing and shit. Oh, and she had this like this lady's maid lady too, and she was like big as too. Anyway, so she goes. Here, Principal it paused, evidently trying with some effort to put the story together in his head. She goes 
oh wait, how fucked it go? Oh yeah, she goes, girl, to the maid, put on your livery, get up behind the carriage and come with me while I visit people. Here Principal Edgar Ford, a lick of drool flinging from his lip which he sucked back in before erupting into a goofy, breathy laugh, all of which made his audience look sideways at each other like, what the fuck? A few people, among them the elderly lady and Anna Pavlovna, did however smile encouragingly at him. She went right, and then there was like a massive gust of wind and shit. The girl's hat came flying off and her hair came out and she had like real long hair. By now he couldn't control himself and speaking between gasps of laughter. And and every, everyone, everybody knew. Here the story ended. It was impossible to know why he had told it or why it had to be told in Russian, but still Anna Pavlovna and a few others appreciated Prince Ippolit's social tact in drawing the attention away from that dickhead Pierre and ending his unpleasant and unamiable outburst. After Ippolit's story, the conversation broke up into posh wanker small talk, inconsequential nonsense about when... <clears throat> excuse me. Inconsequential nonsense about when was the next ball or the last one, about theatricals or who would meet whom and when and where. All right, there we go. That's chapter five for you. Ippolit, you dipshit. <laughs> Telling your silly story. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. All right, well, hey, thanks for listening. That was fun. I always really enjoy reading my version, funnily enough. You know, you'd probably hope so, but... I don't know. It just feels nice. It feels fun to kind of act it out, you know. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow.